Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, continuing our uh, eight-week series. We're in week three today. Eight-week series on uh, discipleship, looking at some uh, basic truths regarding discipleship and considering first um, four truths that we are to know and to believe and to embrace, and then we'll turn a corner uh, in a couple weeks and consider uh, four truths that we are to obey. Uh, And so up to this point, we've looked at two truths. One, we are saved by grace alone, by God's grace alone. He has saved us, Romans chapter 3. And then uh, last week, we considered the truth that we are made new in Christ from from Romans chapter 6. Today, we are uh, considering the thought that we become more like Christ. Becoming more like Christ. Use a theological term we call this sanctification. And in this work of sanctification... After conversion, after we are justified, we become more and more free from sin and we become more and more like Jesus. And so before we get into our text, I'll offer two particular points about sanctification that help us think um, about this aspect, this truth for today. One, sanctification is a progressive work. And then secondly, sanctification is a cooperative work. Progressive work. Sanctification is a progressive work, whereas justification, which we considered primarily over the last two weeks uh, and different nuances of of the initial point of salvation for the Christian, justification is an instantaneous declaration of God over us. In a moment, we are forgiven for our sin. We are made righteous in Christ and our legal standing before God changes immediately. We're declared perfect before God because of the work of of Christ. And so Christ's work is applied to us and we are made new. We're justified. Sanctification, however, is not an instantaneous work. It's a progressive work that can continues throughout the Christian's life. And so if we're, the, the question that we kind of ask here is, okay, so if I'm declared righteous in Christ, then what do I do about sin? Because sometimes it just doesn't feel like I'm righteous. We're declared righteous in Christ. And so we pursue righteousness because of Christ. We're declared holy before God, and so we grow into holiness toward God. It's a progressive work. As we journey through life, we we grow more and more like Jesus. It should be true for us, and I'm more like Jesus today than I was a week ago, a month ago, a year ago. Rewind back to the point when you were saved. We're growing to become more like Jesus. Progressive work. Also, sanctification is a cooperative work. We're saved by God's grace alone. We're made new in Christ by the work of God alone in our lives. And so our work in the initial moments of salvation is merely responsive. God calls us to himself when we repent and we believe. In sanctification, however, we have a very clear and distinct role, and God has a very clear and distinct role. So you have passages like Philippians chapter 2 where Paul wrote, we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We're to work out our own salvation, Philippians 2.12. And then in the next very, very next verse, he says, because it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. And 1 Thessalonians 4.3 tells us that it is God's will for us to be sanctified. Paul said this in that text, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And sanctification takes work on our part. It's not passive. 
We're not just a recipient here, but we're an active agent in becoming more like Christ. It's not just let go and let God, which would be kind of a common phrase that gets tossed around. You you just need to let go and let God. Maybe at some points and in some situations, but that doesn't apply across the board. Sanctification actually takes work. There's diligence required. There's discipline that's required. And our goal here is Colossians 1.28, where Paul wrote, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And so our desire for you as a church, our desire for you, your desire for me as well, regardless of age, regardless of background, skill set, how long you've been saved, your experience, your financial status, whatever the case may be, our desire for you is that we want you to become more like Jesus. And so the question we have to ask of ourselves, do I actually want to become more like Jesus? Do you want to become more like Jesus? So it brings us to our text. We'll read Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. If then you've been raised with Christ, the the language there is kind of a sense idea. Since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And these two, once you once also walked when you were living in them, but now you must put these all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Father, Lord, as we turn our attention toward your holy word, we need you to understand this word rightly and to obey this word rightly. And so by the Holy Spirit within us, your word before us, Lord, help us to rightly see Jesus and to then rightly see ourselves. Lord, we want to become more like Christ. And so by your grace, Lord, would you point out those areas in our lives where we still need sanctification? where we need to be made holy and righteous and to live holy and righteous and to obey because of holiness, because of righteousness. Lord, thank you that you are concerned about our sanctification. And it is your will that we are to be sanctified, that we are to become more like your beloved son. Teach us from your word. We pray it in his good name. Amen. Paul begins this instruction to the church at Colossae, pointing them toward 
the fact that they have been made new in Christ. And so sanctification begins with, number one, this new identity that we have in Jesus. It's not just we go and we start pointing out sins so that we can forsake these particular sins. It's we think larger, we think higher, we think greater, and we think more deeply about becoming more like Christ. And so he begins here reminding the church and reminding us that we have new identity in Jesus. And he begins with a, with a fact. The, the fact is that the Christian is a new person. We have a new identity. Verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. We looked at this last week in Romans chapter 6. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so on the basis of who we are in Christ, he then gives two particular commands here. One is to seek Christ, and the second is to set our minds on Christ. This appeal, this seek Christ to become more like Christ. If you have been raised with Christ, and since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. It's interesting, Paul doesn't identify methods to fight or methods to gain victory over the flesh. He simply points to Jesus. And so often we we target situations, and we remedy a situation, and then what do you know? We find another situation that we need to remedy. And we keep targeting situation after situation after situation, playing this spiritual sanctification whack-a-mole system in our lives, and we we take care of one and another one pops up. And Paul doesn't start with the situations, he starts with Christ. He says, seek Christ. Seek Christ to become more like Christ. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And the language there is not just seek Christ one moment in time, but seek Christ over and over and over. Keep on seeking Christ. We're to seek Christ to become more like Christ. And then the second command that he issues is to set our minds on Christ to become more like Christ. Set your minds on Christ, verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on Earth And his point here is fill your heart and your mind with Christ and the things of Christ. Do you want to become more like Jesus? Well, how do you do that? You focus on Jesus. And so set your minds on Christ. And so a question that comes out of out of verse two here is what do you think about when you have nothing else to think about? What is it that entertains your mental capacity when there's nothing really entertaining your mental capacity? You're not focusing on one particular issue or situation, but what is it that you think about? What does your mind go toward when you're just really not thinking about anything in particular? We have to set our minds on Christ. And so the argument may come against this. That we, well, you have to be careful because you'll become so heavenly minded that you'll be of no earthly good, right? Like we've, we've heard that and we've, we've heard people say that, but that's a fallacy. It's a lie. It's impossible. It's absolutely impossible that we would become so heavenly minded and we would be no earthly good. In fact, we need to become more heavenly minded so that we are more earthly good. The more we set our minds on things above, the more firm our feet are planted in life here. And so he begins with a fact and he issues this command and then he gives an object of this command. He doesn't just say seek or set. He says seek Things that are above, set your minds on things that are above, where Christ is, where he's seated at the right hand of God, not on things that are on earth. We waste so much of our time, so much of our mental capacity on stuff that just doesn't matter for for eternity. And I'm not I'm not bashing leisure and entertainment and activity and all those kinds of things, but anything that deters us from seeking Christ, we should forsake. And so the object of our seeking and our setting our minds is that of Christ. And then he comes and gives the reason in verses 3 and 4. The reason is because you're dead to that. 
You're dead to those things. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You're dead, Romans 6, 2. How can he who died to sin still live in it? And you're now in Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is the concept of union. You've been, you've been united with Christ. And so your life is not just your life anymore. Your life is now the life of Christ. You've been hidden with Christ in God. And so to use Paul's language from Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So you're dead, but also you have a future in Christ and you will actually see Christ. Look at verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, your, your life is hidden in him. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You have a future in Christ and you will see Christ. So it just makes sense if Christ is the end goal of all things that we should set our minds on Christ. First John 3, John put it this way. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. One of our motivations and sanctification is that we are going to see Jesus. We will see Christ. We will stand before the one who died so that we could be redeemed. And who gives us life. Should And this should motivate us toward sanctification. Toward becoming more like Christ. So the question here is, what is it that you are seeking? What is it that you are setting your mind on each day, moment throughout each moments throughout each day? We, we should commit ourselves to God to seek Christ and, and to set our minds on Christ. And so because of the work of Christ, we have a new life and a new way of life. We have this new identity. Therefore, then Paul comes and gives some of the ins and outs of how this actually plays out in real time. And so we have two phrases. You see one phrase there in verse four put to death. Uh, Verse 5, I'm sorry, put to death. And then another phrase there in verse 12, put on then. And so he's given instruction here about how we actually become more like Jesus. And so a lot of times we, we leave, we leave concepts in the theoretical, right? We just, we kind of, we kind of play the air raid game and we just kind of give the overview. And then oftentimes we're kind of left, we walk away from those situations and we're just like, okay, I, I agree with that. I totally embrace that. I believe that. But how does that play out in real life? How does that how does that impact the way I do work tomorrow, the way that I lead my family, all these kinds of things? Well, the first way that this plays out in real time, how we become more like Jesus is we must continually put to death the old way of life. We must continually put to death the old way of life. And so Paul doesn't necessarily just tell us what to do. He he tells us what to do. He doesn't give us a how to. He doesn't give us like a one, two, three kind of thing. He just says, no, this is what you need to do. And the premise here, his argument, is that we should so value and treasure Christ that nothing else in our lives would be satisfying, sufficient, or fulfilling. Do you really want to become more like Jesus? According to verses 5 through 11, we need to get serious about sin. We need to get serious about sin. One of our greatest problems in our Christian lives is that we are far too casual towards sin. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 5. If your right eye causes you to sin, what are you to do? Tear it out, pluck it out, and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, what are you to do? Cut it off, throw it away. So how far will we go to kill sin? We know Jesus is speaking there in metaphorical terms. But the principle is clear. The principle is clear. No, you have to be serious about that which is a threat to your very life. So Paul names these sins. 
It's interesting. He doesn't just say sin. He doesn't just give categories. He doesn't use common words like struggle or wrestle or weakness like we have kind of embraced. Man, I'm really struggling here. Man, this is one of my weaknesses. I'm I'm wrestling here. No, let's just let's call sin sin and get serious about sin. And so Paul comes here and says in verse five, put to death, therefore, in light of who you are in Christ, in light of you being made new in Christ, therefore, put to death, kill it. Make a decisive break, to use language from the Puritans, mortification. There, there's a mortification of sin here. There's, we have to, we have to push toward killing this sin because, like Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ. In verse 3 here, in Colossians 3, Paul says, you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so on the basis of who you are in Christ, kill sin. You're dead to sin, so kill it. It seems as if the odds are already stacked in our favor. Doesn't it? Like, there's, there's no reason for us to walk around defeated all the time. Because God has all the provision and power at our, bus, our at, at, at resources for us to overcome sin, to put to death sin. And so he, he, he begins with, with addressing the inward reality of sin and then the outward reality of sin. Verse five, verses 5 and 6, put to death inward private sin. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So what he does here first is he addresses the you that you are when no one else is around. Right? This is this is the you that you are when no one else is around. And it's interesting, his point here is there's no need to try and hide your sin from God. He knows all things. He knows every deep recess of our souls. And he begins with, and Paul begins here with a group of five sins. And he begins this list addressing sexual immorality, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. And every one of Paul's sin lists that he uses, 1 Corinthians, Galatians 5, Ephesians 5, 1 Thessalonians 4, he always begins with the sin of sexual immorality. It seems as if there's 2,000 years ago there was a, there was a, a certain catch a certain appeal toward this particular kind of sin. But Paul says, you need to put these things to death. And so he addresses sexual immorality, impurity, uncleanness resulting from sexual immorality. Any any type of sexual entertaining of thoughts or engagement of action that is outside the boundary and the blessing of marriage, sexual immorality, immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desire. It's not just the action, it's the intent. It's the passion and the evil desire that drives us to these actions, desires that eventually turn into habits. And then this, this concept of covetousness, this desire for what is not ours. And we understand the connection to sexual immorality here. The core issue here, according to what Paul says at the end of verse 5, is idolatry. The core issue is that of idolatry. The, the person who commits these values himself or herself more than anyone else. We want to satisfy ourselves, immediately gratify ourselves. And so when we when we think about this list, we understand Paul's admonition of verse two, set your mind on things that are above. Set your mind on things that are above. He's talking about character here. You see, here, here's the truth, and we know this to be true because we've all lived it out in one way or another. I can make every one of you think I have it all together. Right. But you may not know about the passion and the evil desire that's within me. Right. Because I can keep that cloaked in a facade 
that looks okay, that looks, that looks good, that looks holy, that looks righteous. But at the core of that issue is that of idolatry. It's worship of self more than worship of Christ, or actually over worship of Christ. And so we're to set our minds on things that are above. We're to put to death the inward sin, the private sin. Are you killing inward sin, private sin in your life? And he addresses sexual immorality, but we know the application goes across the board with regard to sin. So put to death inward sin, but also put to death outward sin. Verse 8, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. From your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing you put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self. And so there's another group here in verse 8, another group of five. And these are more subtle, but they're more identifiable than the first, but no less dangerous. These sins are expressed in the context of relationships. Now let's not forget, Paul is not writing to a person, he's writing to a group. He's writing to a group of people, he's writing to a covenant community joined together by Christ and for Christ. And so the first group, he says, put this to death. The second group here, he say, he says, put them all away. And he identifies these five sins that wreck personal relationships, which reminds us that Christians don't live in isolation. We live in community. We cannot let our tendency or our desire for privacy turn into a manifestation of isolation. Living among one another exposes aspects of our own lives that remind us of our need for sanctification. You know, when I get around people who aren't like me, you know who I understand more than anybody else? Me. You know, when I get around people who I may not like, you know, who I understand? when I get around people I may not like, you know who I understand more than anybody else? Not just the people I may not like. It's me. Because God in his kindness and in his providence and his grace exposes those things within me that may be characterized with this list that Paul brings here. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. We don't live in isolation. We live in community. He identifies these five sins to emphasize the necessity for harmony in the body of Christ. And so anger, that feeling that turns toward hatred and resentment, wrath, acting on that anger, malice, intending hurt or harm toward someone else, slander, harsh words toward someone else, obscene talk, abusive or vulgar words, probably towards someone else in the context of community. All of these Sins that he identifies here that he tells us to put off remind us that words actually matter. Words do matter. And it's not just the words that we say. It's how we say the words that we say. So when a thought hits your mind, do words come out of your mouth? You know, one of the things we cannot do, but we try to do over and over again is take back words. Right? It's like, I just wish I could go back and take those words back. It's done. It's over. The words are out. And then he comes in verse 9 and says, don't lie to one another. Don't lie to one another. Let there be no falsehood toward one another. Are you serious about killing sin? Killing sin in attitude, in the inward parts, but also killing sin of action. Those These outward ex- exp- expressions of sin. We're to be serious about killing sin. And then he goes and gives four reasons why we are to be serious about killing sin. Four reasons. So you may be thinking, all right, that's all fine and good. I agree with you, but I need to know why. I need some motivation for this. If that's you for whatever reason, if that's you, you need some motivation. Well, then Paul gives us four good motivations for why we should kill sin. The first motivation is a rather important motivation. It's the wrath of God. (laughs) The wrath of God is motivation for us to kill sin. Verse six, he says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming on account of what? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. 
God is serious about sin. God is serious about sin. And where do we see the wrath of God most clearly displayed? At the cross of Christ. At the cross of Christ. And so for those of us who are redeemed, who are saved by Christ, we're not fearful of God's wrath that he's going to send us into hell for eternity. But we know that the wrath for our sin has been absorbed by Jesus. So why, why would I sin? The wrath of God. And then to, to use the language of Hebrews and other places, we also know that, that God disciplines those whom he loves. And so God will discipline us when we are in sin and will bring us back to himself because it's so often, it's often the case, all the time the case, that God is more interested in our sanctification than we are interested in our sanctification. And listen, church, that's good news. That's good news. God wants us to be like his son. And he is in the business of making us like his son. And so the wrath of God is a motivation for us, a reason for us to be serious about killing sin. Also, the work of God, the work of God. Verse seven, he says, then these two you once walked when you were living in them. And second half of verse nine, you've you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the image of its creator. And so when you sin, when we sin in these areas and others, Do you realize that we're acting in a way that directly contradicts who we are? When we sin in these areas and others, we are acting in a way that directly contradicts who we are in Christ. And it's true, Romans 6, 11, sin will no longer have dominion over us. And so God is working in us, verses 9 and 10, to make us more like Jesus. And so the picture that he uses here is is that of clothing. You've changed clothes. You've taken off this old set of clothes that's worn and tattered and disgusting and and putrid. And you've put on this new set of clothes. To use the language of of, of, of the Bible, these robes of righteousness. And so why would you why would you take these robes of righteousness off to then turn around and pick up the clothes that have already been thrown into the garbage can? And put these other clothes back on. That's his, that's his point here. Why, why in the world? The work of God in your life should be motivation for you to kill sin. And he says in Romans 6, 6, we know our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be, sl- be enslaved to sin. Now here's the point. Here's the point. The point is you can't live as the old self and the new self at the same time. This is not a little bit of one, a little bit of the other. It's mostly new, but I got a little bit of the old hanging around. No, that's, that's not at all. That's not at all what, what he's saying here. You have to put down one to put on the other. This is not a both and. This is an either or. And we have to remember our identity here. We are made new. And this new self is being renewed in the knowledge of the after the image of its creator. We're being made new. We're being constantly renewed. Romans 12, 2, we're being transformed by the renewal of our mind. And so this is where our role engages. We are determining which set of clothes we're going to put on. We are righteous in Christ. That is a legal declaration from God, as we'll see next week, that nothing can change or nullify. We are forever secure in the righteousness of Christ. And each day, each moment of every day, we determine if we're going to live in accordance to that righteousness. 
Are we going to wear the new clothes of righteousness? Are we going to set aside those old clothes and go back to the garbage dump and pick up the, the, set aside those new clothes, go to the garbage dump, pick up the old clothes and put them on and walk around for a season. So the work of God. No, man, we've been made new. We are righteous in Christ. The work of God should motivate us to kill sin. So the wrath of God, the work of God, should motivate us to kill sin. But also, verse 11, the people of God. The people of God. Verse 11, here, there's there's not Greek and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Sanctification is a corporate reality lived out in the context of the covenant community. We do this together. <laughs> we become more like Jesus together. And you know what? You need me to become more like Jesus. And you know what? I need you to become more like Jesus. This is a corporate reality. His point here is that there is common ground here. There's no racial division. There's no religious division. There's no cultural division. There's no social division. If you look into into the terms that he uses here, it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, where you come from. We are one in Christ. We are all saved the same way and we all pursue sanctification the same way. So who are we to say, I want to be sanctified with this circle of people, but I'm not going to mess with this other circle of people. To use the words of Sinclair Ferguson, if Christ is not ashamed to indwell them, then I will not be ashamed to embrace them. And so our common ground is that of Christ and we need one another to become more like Jesus. The people of God motivate motivates us to become more like Christ. We pursue the sanctification together. Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And the point here is those who love Christ hate evil. Those who love Christ hate evil. And so I'm going to need you to point out areas in my life that you observe that look like they need a little sanctification. And you're going to need me to point out areas in your life that I've observed that look like we may need a little sanctification here. And at the end of the day, we have to ask the question, do we actually hate sin? Not just feel bad about it. Not just feel guilty. Not just feel a little shame, a little embarrassment. No, but do we actually hate sin? Remember, our sin makes the cross necessary. And as recipients of the work of the cross, our attitude towards sin should immediately change. Upon conversion, do we hate sin or do we tolerate sin? Do we tolerate sin? Do we categorize sin where we just have this this concept of if I stay away from these big five, six, seven, then I can I'll be okay with these others. Or do we hate all sin? It's the it's the sexual immorality that caused Christ to go to the cross, but it's also the greed that caused Christ to go to the cross. It's the whole spectrum. What, what is it that causes you to sin? Well, the admonition of our text here, verse 5, is deal with it. Deal with it. Put it to death. Kill it. Mortify it. If you do actually want to become more like Jesus. So if we want to become more like Jesus, we must continually put to death the old way of life. And then Paul comes and flips the coin over for us and teaches us that if we want to become more like Jesus, we must continually grow in our new way of life. It's not just that we're going around killing sin, but it's that as we are killing sin, we are also growing in righteousness. We're growing in this new way of life. So do you want to become more like Jesus? Well, kill sin. You want to become more like Jesus? 
get serious about holiness. With the negative, there is the positive. He says, put off all these things. Put to death all of these things. Let, let these not even be named among you. But also, put on these things. We aren't only concerned with killing sin. We're also concerned with putting on grace. Putting on holiness. Put on, then, this the same language, the same clothing metaphor that Paul is using. Just as you decide what you will wear each day, you will you decide sanctification. And so verse 12, we pursue grace and holiness because of who we are. Look at who he calls the church. Look at who we are. Look how we are identified in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones. As God's chosen ones. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is reconciled. God's chosen ones. How encouraging, church. To be reminded that none of us are saved by accident. It's all the intentional, willful act and work of God. Put on then as God's chosen ones. Holy, verse 12. Holy. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He's not saying you're going to become holy. He's saying in verse 12, you are holy. No, this is how God sees you. This is how God knows you. God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. You are loved by God. Ponder the depth of that truth for a moment. We never move past that one, do we? You are loved by God. Beloved. And so what do we do? We put on inward private holiness, just as he did with the put off and put to death language. He identifies inward and outward traits. This is the secret life. This is another list of five here in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And so we have to ask the question here. Do we see a, Do we actually see a pattern of holiness in our lives? And here he's pointing to the the you that you know when no one else is around. These are the inward characteristics, these character traits that define who we are and what we do. Are you genuine and authentic in your pursuit of holiness or is your apparent pursuit of holiness merely a facade? A facade. It looks good on the front. It's nice brick, big columns. You go around, it's just a metal lean-to. Compassionate hearts. We put on these compassionate hearts. So, are you compassionate or are you cold? Do you respond in love and compassion or do you respond with coldness? Put on compassionate hearts. Put on kindness. Are you identified as one who is kind? Are you harsh? Put on humility. Are you humble? Or are you really just looking out for yourself? Put on meekness. Put on meekness. Are you meek and gentle? Or are you difficult to get along with? Meekness here is not, not some evidence of weakness. It's actually strength under control. Jesus himself was all of these characteristics. And patience. Are you patient? Or are you impulsive? And let's not forget the context that he's writing into. He's writing into the context of the covenant community. <laughs> I can be patient, or no, maybe not patient. I can be meek when there's no one else around. Right? I can be kind when it's just me. But you throw some other people into the mix that kind of rub me the wrong way. Kindness actually takes maybe a little bit of work. 
Maybe a little bit of intentionality. Sanctification doesn't work in isolation. Community is required. And so we we put on inward private holiness, but we also put on outward public holiness. Verse 13. We bear with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, we forgive as the Lord has forgiven us. And so we have to ask the question here, do others observe a pattern of holiness in our lives? So when people look at you, would people say, this guy's pursuing holiness, this lady's pursuing holiness? And how do we do this? We bear with one another. We endure hardship with one another. This isn't some like big communal group hug, feel good, emotional, rah-rah thing. It's anyone can hold grudges and be bitter, but the Christian is the one who does not hold grudges and pursue bitterness. No, we bear with one another. Why? Because we're kind, we're humble, we're meek, we have compassion in the hearts, we're patient. Bearing with one another, but also forgiving each other. What is the standard here that he presents in verse 13? As the Lord has forgiven you. Well, you just don't know what they did. You just don't know what they said. Look, it might be the deepest, darkest expression of sin that you've ever experienced, that I've ever witnessed. But nothing is deeper or darker than people standing around the cross hurling insults at the Lord Jesus and Jesus saying, Father, forgive them. He is our standard for forgiveness. And so does some hurt in your life stand in the way of healing in your life? And so how have you been forgiven? If you if you just look back at, at chapter 2 and verse 13, we see, and you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Well, if they come and confess, then I'll forgive. That's not the way Jesus forgives. (laughs) That's not the way Jesus forgives. That's not the way you were forgiven for sin. That's not the way I was forgiven for sin. That's not the way I was saved. God made me righteous. And I repent and believe. And so we forgive each other. We bear with one another. We put on these outward expressions of holiness. And then he goes in in the last part of the text... Verses 14 through 17, he gives four characteristics of one who pursues sanctification, one who is serious about becoming like Jesus. And so as we walk through this, just ask yourself the question, does that characterize me? Is is, is that me right now? One, the person who wants to become like Jesus lives by the love of Christ. Verse 14. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love here, Paul presents as the key, as the hinge point around which every other activity for the Christian, for the Christian sticks. He put it this way in 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, which means nobody wants to be around me without love. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Which means I can look as the I can look as if I'm a spiritual giant, but without, but without love, I'm a hypocrite. If I give away, give away all that I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. The person who wants to become like Jesus lives by the love of Christ. Is the love of Christ a common trait for your life and for my life? Verse 15. Another characteristic is that the person who wants to become more like Jesus is ruled by the peace of Christ. Ruled by the peace of Christ. 
And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The word rule here is the word we get our modern day word umpire from. And so the, the, the point here is that the, the peace of God is the one, is the determining factor by which we operate in life. And we have peace, the peace of God because we actually have peace with God. We've been reconciled to God and we've been res- reconciled to one another. And so therefore we have peace. And he's not referring just to some inner peace which leads us in making directions. We would say things like, well, don't have a peace about it or have peace about it. No, he's talking corporately. He's talking corporately. You can't, you can't remove from, you can't remove things from verse 11 where there's a bunch of people named in verse 11 that should not be hanging out with one another except for Christ. So we let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts and be thankful. So the person who wants to become like Jesus lives by the love of Christ, is ruled by the peace of Christ. And verse 16 is filled with the word of Christ. It's filled with the word of Christ. Verse 16, let let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We're filled with the word of Christ or the word about Christ. Similar language that he uses in Ephesians 5.18 when he says be filled with the spirit. We're going to be filled with something. We are never empty. We will always be filled with something. And so we submit mutually as a covenant community to the word. And we consume the word privately and we consume the word corporately. And so we teach the word. It says we let the word of Christ dwell in our hearts, teaching and admonishing one another, instructing and correcting. So if we truly want to become like Jesus, we must saturate our lives with the word of God. You have to. I have to. 10, 15 on Sunday morning isn't enough. It's essential and valuable and crucial in our becoming like Christ. But we have to fill our lives with the word of Christ because when we're filling our lives with the word of Christ, we are standing firm against all the messages that come from the world and all the messages that come from within. We must fill our lives with the word of Christ. So we teach the word. We teach and we admonish one another. It's a word of instruction. It's just simply instructing one another, but it's also a word of correction. Where in gentleness and kindness and humility and meekness, we're actually going to one another and addressing situations with the word. And so we are instructing one another and correcting one another. And so we teach the word, but then also he says we sing the word. We're singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Did you realize that when we sing together in this corporate context, we're being sanctified? Singing the word together sanctifies us. And so when we what we sing reflects what we believe. We said a moment ago, words matter. Words matter. That matters in preaching and that matters in singing. What we sing reflects what we believe. Shallow music simply makes shallow disciples. Shallow preaching makes shallow disciples. Want to know what a church believes? Listen to the words they sing. Want to know if they actually believe what they're singing? Listen to how they sing it. And so we do both of these with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Why? Because he's made us new. And so if we want to become like Jesus, we live by the love of Christ. We are ruled by the peace of Christ. We're filled with the word of Christ. And in verse 17, we live for the glory of Christ. We live for the glory of Christ. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him.
Do you realize that not just in this moment, but in every moment in which we live, wherever we go, whatever we do, wherever we are, we represent Christ. In the name of the Lord Jesus. And so everything we are, everything we are to be about, everything we do, we're to do in the name of the Lord Jesus. We are to live our lives for the glory of Christ. And we're constantly throwing up idols. We're constantly throwing up lesser entities and people and things as if they somehow compete with Christ. No, we are to live our lives for the glory of Christ, whatever you do, in word or deed. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And so if you truly want to become more like Jesus, you have to get serious about sin and serious about holiness. There are certain aspects of life we have to continually put to death. And there are certain aspects of life we continually have to put on. We're putting off and we're putting on. We're becoming more like Jesus. And this becoming like Jesus process will take us a lifetime. And the Bible teaches that we certainly won't live lives of perfection on this side of heaven, but that does not give us any excuse for not pursuing perfection. Real life discipleship is not just an accumulation of knowledge and facts. Real life discipleship is really becoming more like Jesus. We want to know, do you actually know Jesus? Have you, have you been made new in Christ? Have you been saved by God's grace alone? Oh, you have? Great. Let's become more like Jesus together. We grow into Christ because we are redeemed by Christ and we are redeemed for Christ. And so we live every day on this earth for the gospel and by the gospel. We put off and we put on. These are willful decisions that we make. And if we're passive, we're done. Passivity is a killer for the Christian. If we kick it in neutral, we immediately roll downhill. And what is our goal? Our goal is Colossians 1.28, the way we began the sermon. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Do you want to become more like Jesus? Well, the admonition of the text is get serious about becoming more like Jesus. This isn't a game. <laughs> this isn't a game. This is for God's glory. This is for God's glory. And whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. We want you to become more like Jesus. If you're a part of Redeemer Church, our goal is that you become more like Jesus. And your goal for me as your pastor, you should be praying all the time, make him more like Jesus. He needs to be more like Jesus. Or he's not anywhere close to being like Jesus. He needs to be made more like Jesus. And it's for God's glory. Alone. So do you want to become more like Jesus? So here's what we're going to do. Before we sing, we're going to pause for an awkward moment of quietness and simply reflect on the text. You may want to just keep your Bible open in front of you and just read through the text again. But maybe through the course of reading the text, through preaching, through singing, God, by the Holy Spirit, has identified something in your life that yet again you need to put it to death. There's a prevailing sin that you just kind of seem to pick up from time to time. 
and just maybe even the picture of taking on these old tattered clothes that you've already thrown away and putting them back on has become repulsive to you. Amen. Good. That should happen for us. So maybe there's a part of your life that you need to put it to death again. And it could be one of these that are characterized in verse 5 or something outside of this text. The command is put it to death. And so simply pursue Christ by putting this to death today. And then the other side of that same coin is put on. Maybe you've been reminded, no, you're actually chosen by God. You're part of the elect. He sees you as holy. He loves you. He loves you. But you're not kind. But you're not gentle. You're not meek. You're not compassionate. You need to forgive somebody. Just express forgiveness in appropriate channels and put on these traits that are in alignment with who you are in Christ.